uh, about our core beliefs. And we've covered thus far all of these topics. And we began, as you recall, uh, a few weeks ago, this particular one on us. We've been talking about us. And we addressed various questions, the first of which was, how did we get here? And we spoke about that one. And then we addressed the question, now that we're here, what is our purpose? What are we to do here? And we found out that we had a, quite a grand beginning created by divine agency. Uh, the very breath of God breathed into us, made in his very image, and for a, quite a grand purpose, twofold, to relate to him personally and then to reflect him uh, publicly. So all that is good. Uh, but if you're honest, I, I think you don't need much persuasion to acknowledge we're really not in good shape. We got off to a pretty good start, but some, th some way along the line we went awry. So that if you evaluate our present world situation, I think you'll agree we've kind of made a serious mess of things. So uh, for tonight, I'd like for us, in speaking about us, to address this particular uh, question. What is our problem? I, I mean, it isn't God. He made us, and he did quite a good job of it. Do you recall when he finished, he stepped back just as an artist uh, evaluates his finished product, looks at the canvas, and is pleased with it, so too God, figuratively speaking, took a look at that which he had created in the very power of his word, and he rendered this judgment on his creative activity. Remember he said, it is very good. So we really can't, if we're honest, we can't fault God, the creator, for our present difficulty and the mess we've made of things. He made us and did such a good job, but somehow, don't you agree, we have managed to unmake ourselves. And though the making was very good, the unmaking, it really isn't very good at all. So what went wrong? What really is our problem? Well, I think we got it from the first one of us, whose name was Adam. And he passed it on so that what was originally his problem has been inherited by us so that now uh, the first one of us, his problem has become our problem. Well, what was his problem? Without excuse and as a deliberate act of the will, he decided, you know, to do his own thing. He sinned. And the consequence of his sin is quite telling and affecting us down to this very day. His sin was charged to our account. Have you heard the word imputed? It's sort of a fancy word, but it means what, in this case, Adam was responsible for, was put on our side of the ledger. It was imputed to us. His sin was charged to us, and if you're hanging in there with me, I know what you're thinking, because I think it also. It just doesn't seem fair. I wasn't there at the time. I didn't tell him to do it. I might even have talked him out of it. 
So why is his transgression, why does it continue to haunt me and plague? It just isn't fair. Well, if, will you allow me to set aside the fairness question just for a, a little bit? And instead, let's just deal with reality. Whether it's fair or not that Adam's problem has become ours is really not the question right now. The question is, is it true what I just said? Has Adam's problem, his sin, has it in fact become our number one problem? Is there evidence of it? Oh, yeah. See, the evidence of Adam's imputed sin is the fact that you and I keep sinning. Where did we get it if not from him? And you've read this as I have. It's a haunting verse, Romans 3.23, for all. And I've used every possible commentary and lexicon and a Greek language tool I could to try to pare down the word all. Can it be like almost everybody, most of us, all the Gentiles? That would be cool. But I couldn't, I just want to see if you're listening. But I couldn't, I can't do it. Here's what the text, for all have sinned. And I'm afraid all in the original language is the same as all in English. All without exception have sinned and thus fall short of the glory of God. So we can talk about the fairness of Adam's sin being charged to our account, but I'd rather talk about the fact of it uh, for tonight. I really, I really want us to be, I hope, lovingly convinced of the fact uh, that his sin has been passed down to us so that it really is our number one problem. So here's the fact I want to make sure we all are persuaded of. Our personal sin is evidence of our inherited sin. And folks, that's our problem we sin, all of us. It's a universal human dilemma. Everybody does it. Most are doing it. Nobody is without it. Adam done did it, and we are as well. Every one of us sins, the first one of us, Adam sins. And don't you see? That's why I say our number one problem is sin. And I know that thought is very distasteful to us. And that's why I'm really making a call for honesty tonight. Don't you find that we're attracted to philosophies, theologies, sermons, preaching, teaching churches that really make attempts at making us look better than we are? I really don't want to be critical, but I'm looking feverishly for the champion in me. And all I could find is a sinner through and through who has violated the commandments of Almighty God. So, so uh, there's a real seeking after preaching and a theology and philosophy that's really attempting to make something of us that we are not. And so today, I don't know if you knew this, we don't sin anymore. We make mistakes. <laughs> I made a mistake. I got caught. I was wrong. It was a mistake. Or, or 
It was a bad decision. I don't know what I was thinking. It was a bad decision. I'm fundamentally okay. But I made a mistake. A bad decision. I'm not a bad person. This is not a reflection of my nature. My fundamental problem is not that there's any principle at work in me, like what you describe. I just made a mistake. Or, come on, be reasonable. Yes, I got caught. I got found out. And yes, it's a bit scandalous. But, you know, let me tell you about my background. If you came from the dysfunctional family I did, uh, you, you'd, be worse. you'd be doing what I do as well. So I don't have a sin problem. I, I have a dysfunctional family problem. Or I just love this. Another approach is to come up with new psychiatric illnesses. Uh, one of the famous Baldwin acting family members was embarrassed to have his terrible and outrageous conversation with his 13-year-old daughter recorded, you know, and sent into the news. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Well, they've come up with a new deal now, another disturbance called some kind of a isolation reaction, where if one parent is withholding is denying you access to the child, then, you know, all kinds of things, psychodynamics take place so that you can anticipate that horribly inappropriate, abusive, uh, vulgar uh, outburst by a, a parent uh, lodged against a 13-year-old. It isn't me. It's a psychiatric disturbance I'm so thrilled they now have invented. So look, I'm a counselor. I don't want to minimize the pain so many are experiencing even as we sit here. And I do believe that there are emotional struggles, and please don't misunderstand. But I'm finding it uh, to be a little unusual that we, we are finding it increasingly convenient to explain away our fundamental sin problem by calling it a mistake, a bad decision, a psychiatric disorder, or the product of a dysfunctional family. Good night, folks. Ever since Genesis 3, that's every family. So, I really want to be told I'm okay and I'm good, but I'm not inherently that way, and neither are you. So if you deny that the fundamental problem of the human race is sin, then you're faced with another really big problem, and it's this. How do you then explain the universality of sin? Explain it to me. It's there. See, if the billions of people in the world were born with no inclination to sin, wouldn't we expect at least that some of them wouldn't sin? Am I missing something here? Wouldn't we expect that some of them wouldn't sin? But everyone does. If we were born, as many would like 
to make us believe, if we were born morally neutral, then wouldn't we expect, if that's the case, we're born morally neutral, shouldn't we expect that at least half, I'm thinking just statistically, shouldn't we expect that at least half of the human race would be perfect? We're born with a blank slate, morally neutral. You can choose to do good stuff, you can choose to do bad stuff. Wouldn't we expect, am I missing it just on the law of averages, that half of the folks should have made the choice to do good stuff, and therefore they don't have any marks on their otherwise blank slate. They're perfect. But you can't produce one that is. So how do you explain it? Look, here's the deal. If one person sins, that's one thing. But if everybody sins, don't you think we're right to wonder why? And here is the why. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, and now we know his name to be Adam, sin entered into the world and death, physical, spiritual, through sin, and so death spread to, there's that haunting word again, all men, because all sinned. So my sinning, once again, is evidence of the fact that I inherited the inclination from the first one of us, Adam. See, here's how it went down. God put him in the garden, really a good place, uh, all of his needs were met. We're told the garden was located somewhere eastward, that is to say eastward of what we now know to be the Holy Land, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So that would be in what modern-day country? It's in Iraq. Yeah, so that's where God put the Garden of Eden. And then he put first the first one of us, Adam. And then God put in the garden three types of trees. It's a wonderful study. I really commend it to you. Just read Genesis. Three types of trees. One was this, every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food. Isn't God good? Not just the bare necessities. I can see if he's good, he gives us every tree good for food. You got to eat. But it's also pleasing to the sight because God wants us to enjoy the aesthetics, the beauty of that which he has created. So that's the first tree. Second, uh, the tree of life. And then the third tree the tree of the knowledge, that is to say the experiential, not just head awareness, the experiential knowledge of good and evil. And man was told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's very clear. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there it is. You shall not eat. Why not? Because in the day you eat from it, here's a promise of God, you shall surely die. So God gave all other creatures natural laws. But for man, his highest creature, he gave a moral law. God said to man, the first one of us, don't do this. Don't Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I do not want you to do this. It is wrong for you to do this. It is not right. See, moral. It is not right. It is wrong for you to do this. And what's more, he said, there will be a severe consequence if, in fact, you do this. 
So what did the first ones of us do? They did it, you see. Uh, they violated God's directive. They failed the moral, the one moral test. And they were in a perfect environment, and so we cannot blame it on their deprived environment. We cannot say uh, they didn't have a dad. We cannot say he never played Little League baseball with them. We cannot say they were inner, from inner city anything. They were in the Garden of Eden. We cannot say they didn't have good schooling. We cannot say uh, they were in an impoverished background. We cannot say they had a dysfunctional... We cannot say they made a mistake or a bad decision. They were in the Garden of Eden, paradise. And they chose to sin. And so that reveals our fundamental human problem. They sinned because they chose to. And folks... I'm not going to be down on Adam and Eve because you and I continue to do it down to this very day. So in essence, the first sin was this, doing one's own thing. And in essence, at the heart of all sin since is the same. It's the creature's quest for autonomy. That is at the root of all sin. That is the fundamental nature of sin. It's our quest for autonomy from God. We crave independence. Don't think, oh, not me, I'm a Christian. Yes, you do. That's your struggle and mine. We love God. We really do. We pray to him from time to time, especially when we need something and want something from him. But really what we would like is not to be so needy. We would like to do our own thing. We would like not to ask what did Jesus do as our pastor is preaching on Sunday or what uh, um, would Jesus do. We would like to say, this is what I want to do and why can't I do it? It's this quest for autonomy. It manifests itself differently. Yours may be different than mine, but I'm telling you, since Genesis chapter 3, we're on a quest for independence from God. That's what sin is. Therefore, if you give up one bad habit, you'll substitute it with another one because fundamentally you're just substituting the symptoms, one for the other, the fundamental issue. This is the answer to the question with which we opened. What is our number one problem? We sin. We have a sin nature. We do not make mistakes and bad decisions. We are on a ferocious quest for independence from the very God who made us to be in communion, relationship, and fellowship with him to crisscross in life with him on into eternal life. But our quest for independence has affected a separation between us and God, and that separation lasts throughout eternity because God and us last throughout eternity. So, folks, we're not creatures who merely make mistakes and bad decisions from time to time. I'll tell you what we are. We're rebels against our maker. Anything else is to under-confess. I'm a bad decision-maker. Well, then you just get a book on how to be a better decision-maker. Oh, no. This is much deeper. We are rebels against our maker, and therefore, his wrath abides on us. We can pat each other on the back all we want. We can give each other awards. We can do all manner of things, but I'm telling you, 
the wrath of God is upon us. It must be this way. His holiness demands perfect obedience and perfect submission to his perfect moral laws and his perfect moral character, and not a one of us has done it. Therefore, in order for God not to compromise on his own nature, which is to be uh, irreversibly and non-negotiably holy, his wrath must be upon all sin. Don't you see, therefore, we have a humongous problem because sin is the antithesis of whom God is. We're at odds with our creator. It doesn't agree with him, our sin. He hates it. He doesn't hate a person because the person is poor. He doesn't despise a person because the person lacks education or intelligence. He doesn't look down on a person who may be disabled or diseased. He surely doesn't hate a person because of his or her skin color. Though the world may despise people in all of these categories, God does not. But God hates our sin. Don't minimize his holiness. He's not neutral about what we come into so easily and by natural inclination. He hates our sin. So we have this inherited natural inclination to do what God hates. That's a big problem. And I can't stop myself and neither can you. So this inclination to sin is in us and over us and upon us and it has permeated every have you heard the phrase total depravity? It's a fancy. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. Good night. We got lots of room to be better. It just means this sin problem has permeated every aspect of our being. Just like one little drop of poison permeates a whole glass of water. We have a big problem, folks, you and I. We have a sin nature which is out of control. We can't control it. It controls us which means it has mastery over us, which means we're slaves to sin, which means we are in bondage and we cannot get free. That's a big problem. Our fundamental problem is not economics and it isn't politics. This is our fundamental problem. It is our sin nature. There was another one of us. You know his name. His name is Paul. But he's just one of us. Don't make him more than he is. He's just one of us. Paul realized it. He wouldn't deny it. And so he found himself struggling with his usness, with his humanness to such an extent that he expressed in rather dramatic terms his sheer and utter distress over his own condition, which he couldn't get out of. And so this is what he said. You know it. It's in Romans chapter 7, but it bears repeating. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. So much for believing yourself, look for the champion in you. I know that nada good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Why not? For the wishing is, ah, oh, come on. Everyone has all kinds of lofty wishes to change the world. and You can't even change your own nature, and neither can I. The wishing is present in me, but the doing... I have these good ideas and thoughts and dreams, but the action plan, no can do. The doing of the good is not in me. For the good that I wish, everyone wishes to do good. 
Everyone knows what's good and what's bad. Good night. A moral God implanted that within us. It's the voice of conscience. The good that I wish, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Can you hear the distress? Forget about Paul. It's your distress and mine too. The very good, the very evil I don't want to do, I keep doing. He ached over the discrepancy, you see. He realized between what he wished to do and what he actually did. So he says, but if I'm the uh, one, if I am doing the very thing I don't wish, then I'm no longer the one doing it. See, there's something else going on, he said. But sin dwells in me. He said his number one problem is sin. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Look, if you and I make mistakes from time to time, bad decisions from time to time, we don't call it a principle. We call it an exception to the rule of my moral neutrality. But if I do it again and again and again, and I can't stop doing it, that's a principle. And Paul called it a principle. The one who wishes to do good, can't do it. He says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God. Look at here. It's not just Bible-thumping Christians who think you ought not steal. Everyone knows you shouldn't steal, and that's why when people steal, they usually do it when no one's watching. I don't need to post the Ten Commandments on the wall of anything. They're inscribed on my heart because I've been created in the image of a moral God. I know when uh, I violate his moral law, that's when I lie. I want to succeed in persuading you. I'm telling the truth when I'm lying. When I steal, I do it under cover of darkness. Uh, if I commit adultery, good night. I don't really want my wife to know about it. Come on, folks. So he says, I joyfully concur. Everyone does with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Folks, he knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. All of us do. The commandments of God are known by us. We agree with them. We know stealing, lying, coveting, and all the rest are no-nos. We would punish our kids for doing any of the above. We know it's not good stuff, and yet we're prone to do these things anyway. Why? We're in bondage to it. It's our number one problem. It's our sin problem. We know what's right. We even want to do what's right. And yet we regularly do what's wrong. And it's exhausting, absolutely exhausting to try in your own power to live a good life and yet keep failing at it. Therefore, exhausted Paul, one of us, cries out, wretched man that I am. It's none of this believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. We are the world. We are the... We've messed up the world. You can sing songs all you want. Wretched man that I am. 
who will set me free from this body of death? It's the sense of a man exhausted by hard labor. He's tired, sick and tired of doing and trying and failing and reading how-to books and how to improve yourself books and all this kind. He's exhausted, and so he cries out. That's not even a prayer. That's a cry for help, an agonizing cry for help. What shall I do? Oh, no, he doesn't. That's the cry today. What shall I do? No, 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 no. His cry was more like for a who. Who will do it for me? I've tried all kinds of what's. And it hasn't worked. So now I need a who. He sensed he needed outside help to free him from his bondage. And then it seems in an instant, suddenly the battle he's experiencing, the internal battle is over and the victory seems to have been won. And so he shouts out now in this most glorious victory cry, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. He's the who. I don't need a what. Don't give me another self-help book. I don't need any of these 10 ways to do this and 18 ways to be that. I know my way. I got an unprincipled way. I'm in bondage. I could write those books. I can't live by those books. Who, he cries out, will solve my problem for me. I'm empty. I've tried all the what's in the world, and nobody could do it better than me, said Paul. I'm no slouch. I'm no slob. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the PhD of the day. Don't talk to me about theology and religion and tradition. I need a who, not a what. I don't want a school of thought. Don't compliment me and say, oh, you're not so bad. I'm worse than you know. If you knew what I was thinking. Good night. If we knew what we were thinking right now, we'd run out of this place. We couldn't tolerate being in each other's company. He didn't need any of these compliments. He needed a who? He needed a... Thanks be to God, says he. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, Adam's sin was charged against us. And we can cry out, that's not fair. But Christ's obedience unto death was credited to us. And that's really not fair either. Don't cry out for what's fair. Cry out for a rescuer who came by grace. Say, oh God, don't give me what I deserve. I am Adam. I have sinned against you. I did it because I wanted to. I can't blame it on the fact that my mother didn't breastfeed me. I did it because I wanted to. <clears throat> but thank you. I hate the imputation of Adam's sin, but I love the imputation of your righteousness on my account. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we stand in need of God's grace to set us free from our sin problem. It's not going to be the next president. It's not going to be peace in Iraq. Well, I wasn't until you brought that up. Wow. Look at here, folks. 
What is the problem? Personal sin. What is the solution? Personal Savior. Don't make it more complicated. Don't psychologize yourself out of this. Don't philosophize yourself out of this. Don't theologize yourself out of this. Personal sin requires a personal Savior. Thanks be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't bow your heads. Don't close your eyes. Don't do nothing. Except sit right there and say, do I have the solution I need for my sin problem? If not, why not? When Jesus stands ready to do for you tonight what he did for another one of us, Paul, 2,000 years ago. Your personal sin, forget about it, Adam and his stuff on your account. Personal sin requires personal saving. How about right there? No one needs to know. Lord Jesus, come into me. Erase the presence, the power, and the penalty of my sin. My eraser isn't big enough. Forgive me. Pardon me. Clean me. Change me from the inside. Make me like you. I'm awfully like Adam. Make me like you. It isn't fair, and so I don't know if I could do this, Lord Jesus, because why should your goodness, says, be charged to my account? I don't get it, but I accept it. By faith. You understand faith doesn't mean re uh, performing some cognitive lobotomy. It's very reasonable if you've inherited from first man a sin nature that you can be bequeathed from second Adam a holy nature. It's very logical. Say, no one needs to know. It's between you and me. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And make me to be different. And all you got to do is say, right where you are. You don't have to hoop and holler if that's not your thing. You could just say, thanks be to God through my new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. Pastor, could you help us the rest of the way?